Welcome to the Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to our Pache Bene Peace Podcast. And thanks, too, for telling your friends about it and encouraging them to listen as well. That'd be a big help. Thanks. At the moment, we're preparing an amazing national conference on nonviolence for August 2020 in New Mexico to mark the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with speakers like Martin Sheen, Dolores Huerta, Father Richard Rohr, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, and many others. It's going to be great. Check out our website and register at www.campaignnonviolence.org. I hope to see you there. So I'm just finishing up my series here on the Sermon on the Mount and then Jesus' campaign of nonviolence. And last month we marked Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So I thought today I'd look at the resurrection of Jesus in light of nonviolence, and in particular, Luke 24, the famous story of the road to Emmaus. So here's my proposal. If the crucifixion of Jesus, the execution of the nonviolent Jesus by the Roman Empire was perfectly meticulously legal, the resurrection of the nonviolent Jesus was totally illegal. The resurrection of Jesus is the most perfect nonviolent revolution in the history of the world. It goes completely against the culture of war and death. You know, according to Matthew's gospel, remember, Pontius Pilate put the imperial seal on the tomb and ordered the the soldiers to guard it, sending the message, now we killed you, so you're dead, so stay dead, stay in there, you're dead, we killed you. But he wouldn't stay put. Everything begins with the resurrection. That's what I learned from my friend and teacher, Daniel Berrigan. Jesus non-cooperates with death. He disobeys the empire and the soldiers and rises from the dead. So the resurrection is the ultimate act of nonviolent civil disobedience. He appears and greets his friends saying, peace be with you. Now you walk the road of active nonviolence into the world of violence and war and proclaim God's reign of peace and nonviolence. So dear friends, I invite you to reflect with me on the resurrection of Jesus in light of nonviolence. For me, resurrection only makes sense in light of nonviolence. I wonder if I can go further and say resurrection is not possible without nonviolence, uh, or with nonviolence, there's resurrection. Here's the way I think, so brace yourself. If it were me, I wouldn't have come back. If I were the savior of the world, and I explained everything to you, and you betrayed me, denied me, abandoned me, arrested me, tried me, tortured me, and executed me, and I went up to heaven, and God goes, I need you to go back down there. I'd say, I'm not going back down there. I'd be resentful for 5,000 years, or if I came back, I'd yell at Peter, how could you have left me like that, you know? But we get mad over the smallest things. This guy comes back and makes breakfast for these people, the ones who abandon him. I always thought, Jesus, that was a little over the top with the nonviolence. Um, I remember one Easter, I don't know, 20 years ago, I had a marvelous afternoon. We had my, my friend Daniel Berrigan and Bob Keck, two great Jesuits I lived with, we had a little mass and picnic in Central Park. 
And I said this to Dan, what I just said, that I wouldn't come back, you know. And he said, Jesus didn't have a mean bone in his body. I never forgot that. It's so touching. Well, I don't know if you heard, but recently these heavy-duty scripture scholars found this long-lost ancient text from a non-canonical gospel. It says that the risen Jesus, in fact, appeared to Peter and said to him, avenge my death. So Peter went and killed Pilate, and then they started forming terrorist cell groups which spread all over Europe. No, I'm making that up. I used to say that in talks, and people would look at me like, oh, now we're getting somewhere. This is a guy we like, you know. That's what would happen if Jesus was violent. Avenge my death. And maybe that's what we want. Uh, but no. Jesus was totally nonviolent, and he returns totally nonviolent. And his friends realize they are totally forgiven, so they become totally nonviolent and take up his campaign of nonviolence and end up giving their lives just as he did. So if Jesus is risen, if Jesus is alive, if God has indeed lifted him as the highest example of a human being, that through him we know what it means to be human because he was perfectly nonviolent, then what? We're called to practice total nonviolence and to give our lives, even as martyrs, for justice and discernment through active nonviolence. This is the will of God. This is what it means to be human. This is the meaning of resurrection. And if all that is true, we can do that because why? We know from now on, if you're with me here, our survival is already guaranteed. Our survival is already guaranteed. From now on, we can resist death and live life and go forward in his spirit of peace, walking in his footsteps of nonviolence, welcoming his resurrection gift of peace, trusting in the God of peace, because we know that the God of peace is in charge, that Jesus is alive and well, and what? That justice is stronger than injustice. Truth is stronger than lies. Love is stronger than fear or hatred or indifference. Nonviolence is stronger than violence. Forgiveness and reconciliation are stronger than resentment, revenge, and retaliation. Life is stronger than death. Dan always said, life has a slight edge over death. God is stronger than the forces of empire, war, and death. So we can go forward and carry on that campaign of nonviolence that there is a nonviolent Jesus began. In other words, what I'm trying to say, and this is my point, what does resurrection mean? Resurrection means having nothing to do with death. Resurrection means nonviolence. So as we try to be nonviolent, we're getting ready for resurrection. We're rehearsing for resurrection. So like the risen Jesus, we try not to have a drop of violence in us, not to have a mean bone in our body. We try to be totally nonviolent and peaceful. So if I may, I'd like to read one of the few resurrection counts, and this is the longest one, and then I want to walk through the story with you. So just relax and get centered and sit back and listen to this beautiful story 
This is from chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke, and so I'm reading from Luke now. At daybreak on the first day of the week, they took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were puzzling over this, behold, two men in dazzling garments appeared to them. They were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has been raised. Remember what he said to you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Humanity must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and announced all these things to the eleven and to the others. The women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. The others who accompanied them also told this to the apostles, but their story seemed like nonsense, and the men did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb and bent down and saw the burial clothes alone. Then he went home amazed at what happened. Now, that very day, two of them were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, and they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them, but their eyes were preventing from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped, looking downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, said to him in reply, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place there in the last few days? And Jesus replied to them, what things? They said to him, the things that happened to Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But besides all this, it's now the third day since this took place, and some women from our group have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, and they came back and reported that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who announced that he was alive. So some of us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, how slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on further, but they urged him, stay with us, it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and it happened that while he was with them at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. And with that, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us? So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem where they found gathered together the eleven and those with them who were saying, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were still speaking about this, 
he stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do questions arise in your hearts? Look, my hands, my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and they were incredulous for joy and utterly amazed. And he asked them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of baked fish, which he took and ate in front of them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'd like to walk through this great story with you and point out a few things for your consideration. It's, it's just so infinitely rich. Um, so there you've got these two crestfallen disciples walking away from Jerusalem, you know, away from the scene of the crime, from Jesus' horrific torture and execution, why they're terrified and grief-stricken. You know, they could be arrested too. They're clearing out of Jerusalem and heading toward this tiny village of Emmaus. They're leaving everything behind. Notice they're walking away from the community and what? Walking in total despair. But the story takes a turn. This, some, someone sidles up to the two of them. We're told it's Jesus, even though he's just been executed. So he's risen from the dead. He's alive and well, but we don't get it, and they don't recognize him. And he asks. <laughs> it's hard to say it with a straight face. He asks them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they stop, and they turn. You know, Are you the only person in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? The risen Jesus asks one of the most astonishing questions in the entire Bible. It still stops me short. What does he say? He goes, what things? I don't know if you know, but 20 years ago, I wrote a book for Random House called The Questions of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus asks over 300 questions in the four Gospels, but gives answers to only two of them? In other words, while Jesus is the one with all the answers, He's also the one with all the questions. Uh, you might like my book. It's at Amazon.com or Doubleday Random House. But, you know, of all the questions, this has always been one of my favorite. Because, as I said before, if it were me, and I was the savior of the world, and I was arrested and tortured and killed, and then died, and then rose from the dead, and appeared to my two friends, I'd be going, you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. And I'd be talking nonstop, as I do. I get excited about the smallest things. He's just been to death and heaven and back. And Jesus is like, uh, what are you discussing as you walk along the way? You know, I'd be shouting. Jesus is so completely different than us. He's so peaceful and centered and mindful. He is peace. And they say, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know the, the things that have happened these last days? 
What things? Jesus is humble, peaceful, nonviolent, mindful, totally centered. Only the risen Christ could say, what things? Now, a little parenthetical aside, my, you know, I used to live in New Mexico, my priest friend in the north. You know, the very, very poor people, indigenous, Hispanic, New Mexicans up in Taos, they don't have a lot of words. And by that I mean you'd be with them. It's so true. You know, it's like, I saw you that time when we were at the place when we did the thing. Yeah, I, how, how did that go? Well, the thing went well, but I have to see you again at the other time at the next place. And you know exactly what they're talking about. I love the gospel because it's the same kind of poor language of the poor. And Jesus speaks the language of the poor too. But this phrase, these things, runs throughout the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. It's, it's used in this story alone six or seven times. Are you the only one who don't know the things that just happened? What things? Well, the things. Oh, well, you, and it's going to end. You are witnesses of these things. I love this. I love that. I don't know if that appeals to you, but it sounds to me like my friends in New Mexico. Well, what is, why? Why is he saying what things? Now, think about that with me, because I've thought about this for 40 years. He's asking us to tell him what happened to this nonviolent Jesus. In other words, I think Jesus wants us to tell him his story in our lives. Isn't that lovely? You know, we're all so egotistical and narcissistic. It's all me, me, me all the time. But Jesus is the opposite of that. And even beyond, the, uh, beyond that, he's so humble. He wants to hear our experience of him, our experience of God. He wants us to share our journeys with him so he can show us how he is right there beside us. And that, dear friends, is how hope is reborn. I love that. So Luke 24 is, well, how do I put it? Reticent about the details, these things. But you can pick up the gist of their talk. Jesus was defeated, the agony of the execution, their hopes are dashed, and the plain fact that they don't see him anymore. And then there's this wild story from these uppity women about an empty tomb. But what I have always loved uh, in this tale, and I, I, I want to emphasize it, it's hard to get our, ourselves into the space of Good Friday, but the grammar in the text unpacks their despondency in ours. In the original Greek, a specific verb tense is used. The past pluperfect. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in elementary school? The past pluperfect. Are you ready? I'm going to say it. We had hoped. We had hoped. That's it's one of the most devastating three words in the human race. We had hoped things would change. We had hoped war and empire and occupation would cease. We had hoped God would do something. We had hoped justice would overcome. We had hoped humanity would 
embrace nonviolence and create a new culture of peace and care for its poor and protect all the creatures and creation. We had hoped death might not get the last word. We had hoped Jesus would lead us to peace. Once we had hope, now we have none. This is total rock bottom despair, the despair of no hope whatsoever. Once there was hope, now we know there is no hope. Our best hope was killed. In fact, we killed God. All hope is gone. Now, this is very important because we all have times like this, but the story is so in your face with humanity, with the truth of humanity, because Jesus is the epitome of humanity, that he, we, we experience everything with him. And in the Good Friday, walk away from Jerusalem, which is a walk we've often taken too, we are in total despair. I mean, in other words, you can ponder those times in your life when you're in total despair, or today, how you can fall into total despair of the world. So it's good to, to not rush through the story, but to place yourself as one of the downcast disciples and find that despair resonating in your own heart. You know, like me, you may recall many past proof perfects that you've said over your life. God, are you the only one who doesn't see what's happening? Nonviolence doesn't work. The corporations are ruining the world. We're in permanent warfare, waged in our names. America's now a total empire with a tyrant crushing the world's poor. More nuclear weapons as ever than on hair trigger alert, catastrophic climate change bearing down us like a global tornado. We had hoped. We had hoped Jesus' reign of peace would break through here and now. And then the stranger whispers, oh, how foolish you are, how slow you are to believe. That's to us. <laughs> how slow you are all to believe all the prophets that the prophets spoke like Gandhi and Dorothy Day and Dr. King and Daniel Berrigan. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into our glory, his glory? I mean, our despair, despair persists. Necessary? No. That's what I remember thinking when I, earliest I read this. What difference did it make? The world is full of injustice and violence and starvation and killings and war on the brink of total environmental destruction, nuclear war, billions upon billions of people suffer extreme poverty and die. Your nonviolent way, Jesus, has been thoroughly rejected. Greed and violence rule the world. And by the way, the church falls right into line. We're afraid to die. We're in love with the culture of death. And the church keep non keeps nonviolence at best at arm's length because it's... 1,700 years blessed and justified and waged war. You could argue things are worse today than ever. And this, dear friends, is where we meet the nonviolent risen Jesus in our total rock-bottom despair. He simply does not cooperate with our despair. He would have nothing to do with it because he embodies hope. He is hope personifies. He is our hope. He was crucified, but now he's raised from the dead, and he starts afresh with these two, which means with us. So he's back to square one, the poor guy, doing a Bible study. 
it's actually, if you think about it, it's an incredible writing that Luke has Jesus do a Bible study with the disciples in the post-resurrection narrative. And he explains all over again the story of salvation. And he outlines all the scriptures, literally. He reviews the journey of faith from Moses through the prophets and the Psalms to himself. And he's tutoring them, what? On the biblical path of nonviolence. The path which is the way of the cross and the way to new life and glory. And he invites the two of them, which means all of us, to understand, wait for it, the wisdom of the Paschal mystery. Huh? Christ has not failed his mission, he says. Death and empire are falling. The culture of violence, war, and death and destruction is crumbling. The old world is falling away. Nonviolence works. Nonviolence is the way forward. The God of love and peace is glorified. The new realm of God's peace and justice is at hand. Even creation will be renewed. Suffering accepted in love in the pursuit of truth and justice bears immeasurable fruit if only one believes and holds out for the long haul. Dr. King put it this way, truth crushed to earth will rise again. The nonviolent Christ lives. So for example, when Gandhi picked up the illegal salt on the beach, British rule over India fell, if you have eyes to see. When Rosa Parks sat down and refused to get up, segregation was over, if you have eyes to see. When Daniel and Philip Berrigan poured homemade napalm on draft files during the Vietnam War in Catonsville in 1968, the Vietnam War was over. And then again in 1980, when Dan and Phil hammered on nuclear weapons, according to Isaiah chapter 2, nuclear weapons were over. The abolition of nuclear weapons is at hand. In other words, Jesus is teaching them the power of nonviolence, which runs through salvation history. No, that is our salvation. He says active nonviolence works. It's worked in the past. It's working through me, and it will work through the global grassroots people power movements. Okay? From Jonah and Isaiah to Jesus and the early church and martyrs, martyrs which brought down the Roman Empire, to Francis and Claire, our heroes, to Gandhi and Dorothy Day, from the abolitionists and the suffragists to the civil rights movement, what, to the anti-apartheid movement, the feminist movement, the environmental movement, the fall of the Berlin Wall and communism to the Arab Spring, a new world of justice, disarmament, and peace is being born. This way of nonviolence, this way of the Paschal mystery as it continues through history works and bears good fruit and leads to new breakthroughs for God's reign of peace here and now in the culture of war. How slow you are to realize this. How foolish you are. Isn't this necessary? This is the way we work to disarm the world. Do you see? He's trying to teach us as Gandhi and Dr. Gid. Dr. King did too. Well, imagine these two travelers. They're like stunned, mesmerized. Like, who talks like that? So they urge him to stay, come and have dinner in the inn with us. And of course, there at the table, he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and shares it, and they recognize Jesus. Because that's what he always did. It's hard for us to think about that, but that's apparently the way our guy was. Every time you sat down with him, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it and shared. 
He's always about sharing a meal together. It's a, the entrance into our humanity with one another and also into God's reign. So Jesus, no, a stranger, a refugee, an immigrant, an outcast, a homeless person, somebody they don't recognize at all, is now revealed in their midst as the risen God of peace, and their hearts are burning. They're on fire, and they're sharing with them new hope is born. So they get up and turn around and start back to Jerusalem. That, to me, is the key to the story. That makes it all believable, because, you know, you're leaving Jerusalem, you're defeated and terrified and afraid, and now you're running back. The road of despair becomes the road of hope. The road of violence's apparent victory becomes the road of daring nonviolence. The road to the inevitability of victory of death becomes the road to new life. The road of fear becomes the road to ongoing nonviolent resistance to the empire. And that evening, the risen nonviolent Jesus appears to the community with the inevitable, ineffable greeting, peace be with you. Repentance, forgiveness, and peace from now on will be preached by you to all the nations, from, beginning from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. You, dear friends, are witnesses to these things. What things? These things. The things? Yeah, the way of the cross, the power of active nonviolence, the story of resurrection. This is the story of all stories. This is the great story. The story of resurrection is the story of nonviolence and its ultimate victory. It's the story from despair to new hope. It calls us to join the peace and justice movements of salvation history, to take up where he left off and to enter the stream of resurrection flowing through time, even in the worst places of the culture of death and empire. In other words, we have to step up and take our place in the lineage of active creative nonviolence that is disarming the world. From, our, from now on, we too are witnesses of these things. And so we stand up, speak out, take to the streets, go back to Jerusalem, sit in and announce the coming of a new world of nonviolence. Like the despairing disciples, we too reverse our tracks, forsake the road to Emmaus, the journey of despair, and return to Jerusalem. Their hope and faith through us continue to undermine empire. And in our fearless nonviolent action, we carry on the work of the nonviolent risen Jesus. From now on, he lives in us, in our act of daring nonviolence, in our creative peacemaking. The story continues every time we turn around and start back in hope to our own Jerusalems and the daring nonviolence, even active civil disobedience for the coming of God's reign. So I invite you to ask yourself, how can we move beyond the past pluperfect? What gives us new hope, even in this terrible time? What makes our hearts blaze? What makes us turn around? Where do you encounter the risen Jesus today? What inspires you 
to join the work of resurrection, a life of active nonviolence? How can we rise up with new energy to face the culture of violence and war head on and continue Jesus' campaign of nonviolence? In other words, how can we be witnesses to these things? My hope and prayer is that as you go, as you deepen your commitment and practice of nonviolence, you know more and more that you are getting ready for resurrection. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Peace be with you.